Welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers by Conscious Discipline. I'm Latoria Marcellus. I'm a mom and an educator practicing conscious discipline. And I'm Amy Spidell, and I've been a CD instructor for a little over 20 years. Together, we're here discussing trends and events in education and how conscious discipline impacts every aspect of what we do. For those of you new to conscious discipline, Conscious Discipline is an adult-first, transformational, trauma-responsive approach to self-regulation that integrates social and emotional learning, equitable school culture, theory and application, research, and brain-based discipline practices. That's a lot. It is a lot. And you know, the one that really sticks out to me for some reason on this one is that adult-first, because I think sometimes we think, wow, that's new. That has always been true. We're always been guiding our kids. We just, you know, haven't really paid attention to what we're teaching them all the time. And that's why you watch any two-year-old and they'll show you exactly what their grown-ups are doing. <laughs> so it's being the transformation part is just being the person you truly want them to become, because that is where we get out of our own judgment and all of the things that get in the way and truly become creative and curious about how we see behavior as communication that allows us to support our kids with tools. That's really the crux of this and how we make a difference in the world. And I think that today's guest is really gonna help us dive into how this is really an adult first transformation. Mm -hmm. Today, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Valerie Parker. She is a fierce advocate for black boys everywhere. Her research focuses on teacher perception of behavior that leads to student misconstruction. And she's going to talk to us today about how changes in our perception can help address some much larger systemic issues. So welcome, Dr. Parker. Oh, thank Yay. you guys for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I was waiting my turn to get on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are so glad that you said yes um, so that we can talk to you because all of the things that you have been studying, advocating for, and just keeping in the forefront of our minds, it's so very important. I know Amy and I have just been waiting to have the opportunity to talk to you about this. So again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Absolutely. So let's jump into this. Valerie, well, excuse me, Dr. Parker, tell us a little bit about um, what you do and, and who you are. Give us the rundown. All right. Well, I am a one. I'm an educator always have been, always will be in one capacity or another. I am the mom of a very vivacious, rumbunctious six-year-old. Um, I am the wife of Mr. Michael Parker. I currently serve as the education committee chair for the Howard County branch NAACP, where we are fighting every day. I just got off an NAACP call about what we were going to do to create more equity for our Black students in Howard County public schools this year. Um, so I do that in like the, the side hustle work. But then in my day-to-day -day job, I am an assistant principal at Langley Elementary School in Washington, D.C. Whoop, go Tigers! Uh, there, I am modeling and being a support for teachers so that they can pour into our students socially, emotionally, um, and of course, academically, but 
creating the conditions to where learning is possible for all kids, especially Black kids, is what I'm all about. We remove the barriers for Black kids, specifically Black boys, and everybody wins. Yeah, we can hear him. And we can hear your boy. Tell him we say hello. (laughs) This is real life. Oh, my goodness. Real life. Right, right. And today we are really diving into relationship building and how to address the achievement gap in this school to prison pipeline. So what I need you to do for me, Dr. Parker, is break down what you mean when you talk about this school to prison pipeline. What is that? Sure. So the school to prison pipeline is not only just a set of policies such as zero tolerance, which means if a kid does A, you do B, right? So for example, if a kid brings a gun to school, there is a one size kind of fits all response to that. They're expelled, they're out of here, right? So it's not just the zero tolerance policies, but it's our everyday practices, Right. It's our beliefs about student behavior that's leading to them being put out of class. And so you get put out of class on a Monday. You come back Tuesday. Now you're lost. You have no idea what's going on. And then each day's lesson builds on the last day's lesson. So what do our boys do specific? They they act a fool. Right. (laughs) They act a plum fool to get out of class because they're going to their safe person because rather than looking incompetent in front of their peers, they're going to throw a chair to get to that person that sees the best in them. Like no matter what they did, what they said, what kind of language they used, right? This safe person is the person that sees the best in them no matter what. And so they will do anything and say anything to get to that person. But when you have that, then instruction's not happening. And so you are creating this academic gap that leads to them missing more and more instruction. And then they start getting suspended, right? And then they start getting expelled. I've seen a fifth grader walk out of my school in handcuffs. And I'm like, well, mm. what is this teaching them? So the school to prison pipeline phenomenon is, again, the, the policies, the practices, the rituals that lead to students' misinstruction that allow them to begin their career, a journey into the criminal justice system at just the tender age of 10 and 11 years old, sometimes even younger than that, seen on the news, a first grader uh, get locked up. And so what's the purpose? What's the function behind that? What is that going to teach them about their behavior, about themselves, about these systems Right. Mm-hmm. And so when they feel like they are not being supported in these systems, they're not experiencing success in these systems. They stop coming to places that look like school. Right. Where education happens. And then you get them um, in high school and now they don't have to show up if they don't want to. Right. They start dropping out at higher and higher rates every year. Then they join gangs. Why? Because they need safety and they need connection. And, you know, sometimes it's problem solving, too. If I need a TV, I'll, we all going to go and get that thing. Right. So we create mm-hmm. these conditions right. to where they can't rely on these systems and they start relying on other things. And, you know, I remember you uh, way back when I first heard you speak so eloquently uh, that you shared a story about your son. And he wasn't in first grade, as I recall. He was even younger than that. And that he was already getting an impression of himself 
Um, would you be willing to just recap that? Absolutely. I, I think about that every single day, especially as he is navigating these education systems with and without me. Right. So Josh, when he turned one, I realized that he didn't have a lot of language, right? He didn't have the amount of language that he was supposed to have. By the time Josh was three years old, he had been kicked out of six daycares oh, in very prominent community, right? This is um, Montessori daycares and the ones that I got paid $1,700 a month for, Right. So he was being put out of these facilities because they said that he was dangerous. They labeled his behavior as violent. At three, At three he was aggressive. The kids are afraid of him. Right. And so when you're using this type of language to describe his behavior, he's internalizing that. Right. Mm-hmm. But not only that, what are you teaching the little white children around him about people that look like him? I can only be safe if he's gone, if he's over there. You got to come pick him up. He can't be here anymore, right? So those little girls, when they grow up, they're now white women. And then when you see a black male and he's dysregulated, he's upset or emotional about something, you, you become afraid. You cross the street, you clutch your pearls, you don't feel safe, but you don't have the rationale for why, right? It's This is the, the place where implicit bias is birthed at two, at three in these education facilities that we entrust our kids to, right? And so he was put out and put out and put out. I got him evaluated. They determined that he had a speech disorder, right? Which I kind of figured it was more of his language acquisition, that was the trouble, had his hearing checked. They said that at three years old that he had ADHD. Now I spent 10 years as a special educator, but I was like, "Uh uh-uh, not my black son, right? Because I've seen as a special education teacher, black boys be over-identified for having ADHD. If they got big feelings and, and big behaviors, right? Big emotions, then they are- Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We got to fix them, right? And it's not something that you fix the kid because get him to behave, get him to sit still, get him to, it's not any of those things. It's we have to create an environment that makes sense to their brains, right? So when they said that he had ADHD, I was like, "Uh uh-uh, not my black son, not this black boy. But then- when I was home with him during COVID for 18 months, I was like, absolutely him. He's the one. (laughs) So again, it it wasn't about fixing him, but it was getting people to understand like how he interprets these situations in the world. They thought that he um, was an autistic child. They tested him a bunch of times. And for as many indicators as there were to say that, yes, he is, there were just as many to say that, no, he's not. And ADHD and autism looks very similar mm-hmm. in very young children. So they didn't know what to do. So he went into uh, pre-K three, we were virtual pre-K four, we were back in person. And I was like, good, because now they can't kick my son out. He has an IEP and mama knows all things IEP and the special education law, come on with it. <laughs> so right. the, the issue was, 
he had a teacher who was not willing to build a relationship with him. And so it was evident in her reactions to him. She would get so triggered by what this boy would do. She would take him and put him in an isolation room. Right. So when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline phenomenon, you're preparing my son, this child right here. <laughs> you're preparing him for what institution do we use um, solitary confinement? Oh, prison. Right. And again, what are you teaching the other children in the class about him? Not let's take a deep breath and wish Joshua well. He's having some big feelings right now. Right. And so I would ask her questions like, um, what did he do to get put in an isolation room very, very nicely because I thought it was wrong anyway. But she would say, oh, he was throwing puzzle pieces. Were they made out of glass? <laughs> Shards of glass, huh? Of glass. Like, and then so in, in an effort to remain in partnership with her, right, because I could have pulled him out and like, nope, she doesn't get him. Um, let's just move him to another school. We would be hopping schools every year when I know that it's the relationship. So let me help her build a relationship that's meaningful to him and her, right? So I would tell her things like, hey, at home, choices work really well for him. If you invite my son to a power struggle, he's going to show up and show out. You're going to lose every time, right? As a so parent. You, mm -hmm. so, so when you're thinking about how to support the most marginalized children, which usually are our black boys, what what nuggets of advice can you share with teachers that you can share with parents to take to their teachers so that when their children are putting being put in that isolation room, you know, how can you how can we talk to them? What do we say to get that support that they really need? Well, and find out what the parents are doing at home. So I told her, right, I gave her some, some key information. At home, it's really helpful when I give him choices. For example, Joshua has a hard time transitioning, right, as it is a manifestation of his disability. Um, Joshua, it's time to get in the shower. You have a choice. You can walk upstairs or mommy can carry you. Keep your... Keep your goal in mind, but allow him some autonomy and 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 how it gets done, right? Also, at home culturally, we speak in assertive tones, right? You're asking Joshua, Joshua, do you want to clean up right now? He's gonna say no because what he doesn't want to do, what he doesn't want to do, is clean up, right? So you saying it in an aggressive tone, he's not going to respond. He's going to go right down to his survival state and he missed everything that you wanted him to do. So one, give him choices. Two, speak to him in an assertive tone that he understands and that he also gets at home. That has that leaves no doubt in his mind that what I'm asking you to do is something that I want you to do and I want you to do it right now. Right? You can have some autonomy in how it gets done, but this is when you're going to do it. Period. So, so I'm, really, I'm really curious about um, how you came about the, you know, you're talking about relationship and choices and assertive voice, and those are all the things that are embedded in conscious discipline. So when you started this, was it because of your profession as a teacher, or do you feel like you really dove into it because of your son? Like what drove you to pick up those tools? 
It definitely started as a professional endeavor first, right? I worked in Baltimore City Public Schools for 10 years, and I've seen Black boys and girls put out of class at alarming rates. And so that kind of triggered to me like something else is missing, right? Because if you bring them back, teachers don't feel supported and they're dysregulated. They're not ready to receive them back yet, but there's something about how they're perceiving their behavior that it's more like bad. Don't talk back to me, right? Don't question me. I asked a teacher during my, um, during the interviews that I was doing for my study, like, how do you interpret someone's or how do you define disrespect? This teacher told me, now mind you, she's an ELA teacher. She told me that it was disrespectful when a child questioned her about why we were doing this. And I said, well, tell me more. She was like, well, I was raised to, to think that we don't question adults. You do what you're told and that's it. And so they're bringing a lot of their cultural beings and their backgrounds and how they were raised into classrooms. And there is a disconnect because kids aren't responding to that, right? And then you're having these power struggles. And then next thing you know, they're kicked out of class, yeah. right? Or it, they're suspended. It does go to that relationship, doesn't it? Not at all. And then it, it grew once I had my son, right? Now it became a personal thing because I'm seeing this at work, but I'm also starting to see this at home. I had to leave work early so many days to pick up this child. And they said that he couldn't play gently. And I'm like, we have a 150 pound Rottweiler that he's hugging and, and playing tug of war with and all the things with like he, they didn't set him up for success. And so I don't think that they had the capacity to, not that they wanted to see him fail, but they also didn't see him through the eyes of his own lived experience. Here is what the short-term impact is for this little black boy. Here's what the long-term impacts are for him to keep having these negative exchanges, these negative interactions with people in learning institutions. He's not going to want to come here. And so it's not a, a, a black white thing. It's a relationship thing, right? Yeah, so my son had a really tumultuous pre-K four year with that teacher. He gets into kindergarten and Lord knows I prayed every day. Please give him the teacher that sees him, sees right. him as a black boy and what, what life is going to look like for him, how he shows up in the world, how people perceive him, even though he's in kindergarten. So the kindergarten teacher, white woman, just lovely, calm, composed. I don't know what she did to my son, but she made him fall in love with learning again. Oh, she did. And it wasn't that she needed to be of the same race. She saw him. She yeah. saw his behavior as, oh, I got this. You know, she helped him learn these calming strategies that he started doing at home. He came home and like, mommy, Miss Saffron said, Miss Saffron said, Miss Saffron said, I'm like, okay, yep. So it, it was the relationship that made the difference. My son came home wanting to do his homework. Mommy, can we do my homework now? Can we do my homework now? And it's not because she incentivized it, right? She set the expectations high for this black boy. And he rose to the occasion as a result, right? She taught him these, these skills 
and expected him to use them. And he did. He had a phenomenal kindergarten year. And I wish I could take her with me throughout the rest of its educational experience. But again, the relationship matters when he's struggling. She's his safe person, right? He doesn't have to go outside of a room. He hadn't get, got kicked out at all this year. And the two phone calls that she gave me was just to ask me not to say, well, Joshua didn't do this or Joshua did this today. It was more like, hey, mom, has anything changed that I need to be aware of? It was more of her being curious about the a small shift that she was seeing instead of like blaming and shaming and judging him for him not using those skills on those particular days in those moments. As you tell your story, it makes me think of a word that we say all the time in conscious discipline and it's perception. Mm-hmm. And what I want to hear from you, you know, Dr. Dr. Parker is how does perception play a role in all of this? So perception is, well, one, the hardest thing to change in this life is somebody's mind, right? Mm -hmm. When people have their minds made up about what something is, it's kind of hard to shift that. And we know as CD practitioners that our brains automatically have a negativity bias. So we got to work twice Mm -hmm. as hard for us to find the the positive, the joy, the peace in a certain situation. If you have a negative perception of a student and a student's behavior, it is going to impact how you react or how you respond to them, which will then either make your relationship stronger or it is going to break your relationship. Every single opportunity you have with another human is your opportunity to make it stronger or to break it. So the perception, it drives it all. It drives how you feel in the moment. It drives what you think about the situation, whether, oh, that's good or that's bad, right? That is not the way we do things here or that's exactly how we do things here. You start to categorize these things and not Mm -hmm. really think about if I respond in this way, is it going to be helpful or is it going to be hurtful, right? And then what is that going to do with our relationship moving forward? So I think checking your perception and that's why Amy said before, this is an adult first model, that perception piece is so crucial because you can have the safe spaces and you can have all the wish wells and all the pretty little structures and the posters and all that. But if you haven't made that mindset shift, specifically for your perception, we are just going to be perpetuating this cycle. And kids are going to continue to miss out on instruction and this school to prison pipeline will prevail. So with that in mind, how can we help all educators, you know, all of them everywhere? How can we help them shift their perception? Is there anything that we can do or what can they do to help shift their own perceptions of Black boys? That's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with checking your own bias first, right? A lot of this is the the self-work that we have to do in order to shift this perception. Because if I'm already thinking of Black boys as being loud, obnoxious, they're aggressive, right? So I got to check that first. And I also have to check my triggers because it's not the Mm -hmm. world's job to tiptoe around those triggers that you have. It's yours. If these children 
never do anything different, what am I going to do? Right? So a lot of this would be internal work. And then like have a plan for your triggers. Man, Mm -hmm. just as important as it is to be able to identify your triggers because it drove me crazy as a classroom teacher when kids called out because I'm from a sped background and I'm like, you didn't give them a chance to to collect any kind of independent thought, right? Oh, um, whenever kids did that, like initially early in my practice, I would just like, stop doing that. What did I tell you about doing that? And that's not helpful and da, 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 da. But then it's like, oh, they forgot. I didn't have the visual. Let me put one up and let me remind them, oh, you wanted to, to respond to um, a question that I answered. Next time, I want you to raise your hand like this. I'm going to give them that model, right? And then we're going to practice, 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 practice. Mm-hmm. So I have a plan now for when kids do that, I'm going to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And then also, and I'm going to go back to this because I think it's super crucial is knowing this school to prison pipeline phenomenon and how I contribute, right? Mm. If I put it out, if I put in, and as a black woman, as a black mom, as a black teacher, I've done this. I've put kids out of my classroom. I told them don't come back, right? I was responsible for getting them suspended. I've contributed to the system, right? So I think it's understanding what this is going to look like for them down the road if we continue this. And so that alone, that thought gets me to do something different, right? Because if I put them out, then they're going to miss this and then they're going to act a fool and then they're going to get suspended and all the things. Or I can pull close to them and really have a conversation. I can build that relationship where it's like, you know what, I'm having a really hard time with such and such, but it's also naming that. It's naming that because sometimes we don't, we want to think that as teachers, we got it all the way together. No, we don't. I'm having right, a hard time. Right. Just, let me have lunch with such and such. Let me get to know such and such. I had a student, um, what was it, two years ago, try to fight me. Seventh grade, seventh grade girl, try to fight me. And the principal was like, well, yeah, she can't do that to staff and we're going to send a message and we're going to suspend her. And in my survival state, I'm like, mm-hmm, she would deserve it. In my emotional state, I'm like, I can't believe she did that. But then once I was able to calm myself and get back to my executive state, I'm like, now if you suspend her, what in the world is she going to learn at home? She's not going to learn anything. She's not going to learn anything from me. It's not going to help our relationship. So instead of suspending her, I told my principal, have her come and see me for lunch and recess so her and I can, can chat Day one, she didn't want to talk to me. She sat in my room like this. And I'm like, I'm patient. I'll wait. <laughs> right? Day two, we started to talk and we started to get to know one another. And I did, this young girl was brilliant. She started her own business in the seventh grade. And so in an attempt to teach her something, I'm like, oh, she doesn't. She was upset and she didn't know what to do with all that anger. So her and I started having these mindful moments. We started doing yoga together. We started doing breathing routines. And anytime she got triggered, I was the person that she wanted to come to. I became her safe place. So you have a choice, right? You Mm -hmm. can suspend them and send them home and they're going to be on YouTube all day long. Or they can stay here. We can be intentional about, one, what we're teaching them. But two, 
making a relationship strong and solid. And that kid, she left the school at that, the end of the year. She just texted me like two weeks ago, like, I know it's probably, I'm not supposed to be texting you, but I really miss you. You were the only person that really wow. listened to me. Had I stayed in my survival state, right? It, it wouldn't have been that. We wouldn't have gotten to this place and peel back the onion. There were so many layers to this girl. But I, if I were only willing to just see her as that moment and that behavior, that was bad and she's rude and disrespectful, how dare her, then who knows what would have happened after that, but probably nothing positive. Uh, you know, Dr. Parker, mm -hmm. that is the transformational change though, isn't it? Because she went from fighting you to breathing with you, but she wouldn't have gotten there unless you transformed from wanting to have her punished to wanting to support her in being the strong person that she clearly was. That is, that really is such a beautiful picture of transformational change. And it was hard. And I don't want people to think it's easy. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Because <laughs> at the moment, my brain did what it was supposed to do, <laughs> right? It was supposed to protect me and, yeah. and keep me alive. But if I would have stayed there, then we wouldn't have gotten to those moments. And I told her, I was like, you remind me so much of me when I was your age. No one taught me how to navigate these emotions that I'm supposed to have. I'm not supposed to be angry because then I'm going to be seen as the angry black girl to grow up to be an angry black woman. Like no one taught me how to do these things to, to calm myself when I am triggered. Um, so I didn't want that to continue with this young lady. And so like, I'm hoping wherever she is that she is mm -hmm. using those things in you on a path that doesn't lead her to, you know, these institutions that were designed to see us fail. Right. And you know what? I remember when I first met you, it was in a hallway at Elevate. And when I saw you, you were, you know, sitting on the floor, looking through your phone, looking at your wedding pictures, I think it was. Yep. And, and we had an opportunity just to talk a little bit. And you told me about your research and all the things that you were doing. And I was so excited that you were coming to speak with us today because what you have been able to do is show why conscious discipline matters. It's not a thing of, I just want people to behave in my classroom. It is a matter of changing the trajectory of the lives of adults and children in this world. The work that you are doing is a big work. And I have to say, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming mm -hmm. to share that with us today because people need to hear all the ways that conscious discipline makes a difference. It's not just about putting on an apron, singing and dancing. It's about seeing people and changing your perception so that you're not seeing them just through some lens that you made up but you're actually seeing what's there. And you gave us a beautiful reminder of that today. So thank you so much, Dr. Parker. I don't think anybody could have did it the way that you did. Everything that you bring, you know, even Joshua in the background, his comments, make this real. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thank you. So thank you. And thank you for having me and allowing me to share my stories on this platform for all to hear. And I think that for like the reason why I'm doing this and I go so hard for this work is because 
self-regulation and relationships for black boys is not, it's not optional. This is crucial. Mm. The education system wasn't designed for us to thrive, right? It's like yeah, trying exactly. to fit these baked into the system. Square holes into these, um, well, you know, the square pegs into the round holes. And right. so I think that this is crucial and critical for us to be able to survive these systems because they thrive when we fail, right? Think about the prison industrial complex where mm-hmm. if the kids aren't reading, especially black boys aren't reading on grade level by third grade. They're designing mm-hmm. a pretty little cell for you. So, right. right. And we have to have these different conversations with our black boys and girls. But I feel like that self-regulation piece is what's going to get them home every day. And so it's mm-hmm. necessary. We're not choosing to do this on some days and not do it on others. This has to be built into the fabric of every exchange that we have with them. We have to be teaching them, not just judging the skills that they don't have. And so I will continue the good fight and you guys are alongside me in this journey, but I thank you for having me. This, This has been awesome. There's a good chance that as you listened to this and took it in, there were questions that bubbled up for you. And we do wanna give you the opportunity to be able to ask those questions. Normally we feature an audience question uh, that we have gotten. However, lately we've realized we haven't gotten any because oops, the emails weren't working, but we fixed it. So if you send your questions to podcast at consciousdiscipline.com, we'll be sure and respond to those. And we can even have the person who has been our guest do a little responding as well. So just know that this doesn't end at the end. Well, that's exciting having that possibility. And while we're thinking about things that are super exciting, we have some celebrations. Slate Run Elementary School has been added to the Alliance for a Healthier Generation's 2023 list of America's healthiest schools. So we are definitely celebrating with principal and our fellow certified instructor, Amy Niemeyer. So we can't leave without sharing some wish wills with you as well. We're definitely wishing well all of those who are returning or who have returned to school already. And we also want to wish well all of those who are affected by what seems to be the ever-present season of adverse weather. People from Hawaii all the way to Florida have experienced impacts from these unprecedented and devastating storms and fires, even tornadoes. And we want to wish you well as we navigate remaining safe during this season. So please know that from our heart to yours, we wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers featuring Latoria Marcellus and Amy Spidell, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast.